Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 41 in our series for 2018, and today's date is Friday, November the 23rd. First, I speak to American multi-tool inventor Tim Leatherman, who developed the Pocket Toolkit. It's an extraordinary story of how he developed so many different tools folding up into a pocket-sized kit. It took him eight years to turn his startup into a global mega-brand. And then I talked to Indeed economist Callum Pickering, analysing Australia's latest wages and jobs figures. It's a good start, he says, but there's a long way to go. But first, let's talk to Tim Leatherman. Well, Tim Leatherman, uh, tell us about how you developed the Pocket Toolkit. The story starts when my wife and I took a budget trip to Europe and I was carrying a pocket knife but often needed pliers. So the idea was to add pliers to a pocket knife. It was a long trip. We traveled about nine months altogether. But when we returned, I asked my wife if I could build one of these, just one, just for me. (laughs) She asked, uh, how long will it take? And I said, maybe one month. She said, okay. So she went to work to support us, and I went to the garage and picked up a file and a hacksaw and tried to build what was in my mind. And three years later, I had a prototype that I liked. And I then spent another five years uh, modifying the prototype to what the world liked and finally got a customer and started a business. About seven years into the eight years, I'd about given up. And then a friend of mine from university days uh, stepped in and said, there's still a few things you haven't tried. Let's be partners. So we, that last year, we were finally able to find a customer. And then that left us to start a company to manufacture the tools. And we were quite lucky because my co-founder's father uh, had a metalworking business. And he allowed us to move the equipment I'd accumulated in my, in my garage into his shop. And also to use his machines and his employees on a subcontract basis. And how many years ago was that? The trip was started 43 years ago. So we uh, then in the eight years in the garage, and now my company, Leatherman Tool Group Incorporated, has been in business for 35 years. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, what tools are in your toolkit? Just about every tool you, you would need that you would find uh, in your work box, in, in your toolbox, such as a pair of pliers, a needle nose pliers, regular pliers, wire cutters. There's actually two kinds of wire cutters, a scissors section and then a hard wire cutter for springs or fish hooks or those really hard things to cut. There's uh, screwdrivers, several different screwdrivers, a Phillips screwdriver, uh, several flathead screwdrivers. There's even one a micro screwdriver for glasses or electronics. There's a pair of scissors, a file, a saw. The file has diamonds on one side and regular teeth on the other. The saw is very aggressive in cutting. It'll cut dry wood, wet wood, plastics, even some metals. And there are two blades in the tool. One is serrated and another is a standard edge. That, I mean, that's, what's extraordinary here is that you, you actually have a factory in Oregon producing this. Correct. We started in Oregon. That's where I was born and raised, and that's where I spent the eight years in the garage. And then when we uh, when we started the factory, we were... so this factory. How many do you employ? Today we have over four hundred employees in our in our at our company headquarters in Portland. So how many toolkits do you produce? We produce uh, 8,000 a day per day. 8,000 toolkits a day. Yes. So uh, where are your markets? Which are your biggest markets? We export to more than 70 countries around the world. Our bigger export markets are are, um, Canada, Germany, United, United Kingdom, France, Australia is in the top five. And some of the smaller ones, one of the ones I'm most proud of is we export to Mongolia. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, <laughs> that, I mean, look, I mean, but the issue is that since you set this business up 35 years ago, there, you would have many other companies coming in, copying what you're doing. So you would, surely you would have to, um, start to stay ahead of them you would constantly have to change the toolkit, wouldn't you? You would have to constantly add new things. Is, would that be right? Correct. That's a very perceptive observation. We definitely had, uh, comp- uh, first of all, we had what I call the copiers from China that were pretty much just copying our tool but selling it for one twentieth the price. And the quality was one fiftieth of our quality. And then, But then we started to get what I call the competitors who developed a tool or tried to develop a tool that would do what ours would do but didn't infringe our rights. 
And you're, you're correct that the competition keeps us on our toes. It forces us to stay one step ahead of them. And it makes us very customer focused to know who our customers are, what they're using our tools for, and what they wish they had in the tool that it doesn't currently have. So how do you still, after 35 years, how do you still coming up with ideas? How do you keep coming up with ideas after 35 years? There's two sources. Uh, the main source is our customers themselves. They send us suggestions all the time. They say, "We love. I love your tool. It's 99% perfect, but if it just had, and then they start listing the items. So that's a source for, uh, for items to add to our tool. And then the other source is just internally. We have a genius working for us in uh, tool design. He's the world's best multi-tool designer. And as an example of an internally driven idea, his name is Ben Rivera. And he took his family to Disneyland on vacation. And of course, he was wearing his Leatherman tool but the guards would not let him in. He thought, there has to be a Leatherman tool I can bring into Disneyland. He came back to the factory. He's much faster than me, not eight years later, but a few months later, he came up with, a, with 25 tools on your wrist, a wearable Leatherman tool. And um, so that's another source of, um, of, a, of a product innovation is internally. That's extraordinary. That's extraordinary. So, but you would constantly have to keep coming up with ideas like that. Yes, yes. We, for sure, um, our customers expect new things from us. And the, if we don't, the competitors will do that, will do it. And we, we need to stay ahead of them. What's, your, what's the key demographic of the market? I'd imagine it would be your, your tool would appear to appeal to very outdoorsy type of people. You're right. There's uh, three basic uh, customer types for a Leatherman tool. The outdoors, I call them outdoor recreationists, and that's everyone from the hunter and the fisherman to the bicyclist and the bird watcher. And that's one the major category. A second category is um, what, what I call DIY, do-it-yourself, people that have a tool in the kitchen drawer to take care of those things they need to do at home. Or, and then the third category are what I call uh, professional users people who use the tool on the job. And that could be anybody from a soldier to a, just today I was at Federation Square in Melbourne and three policemen walked by and they had Leatherman tools. And then, or it could be uh, on the job, could mean plumbers or carpenters or electricians or computer technicians, could, those sorts of things. Or even ranchers. Ranchers, yes. Um, we have a, a station owner in Australia, that sent us a, quite a stirring testimonial. He has a huge station. He was at the far end of his station uh, fixing uh, a fence. He was with his 14-year-old dog, and his four-wheeler wouldn't, the gears wouldn't engage in his four-wheeler when it was time to return. The nearest water was 15 kilometers away. His options were to walk to the 15 kilometers, leave the dog, walk the 15 kilometers, Probably the dog would be dead when he returned. Take the dog with him. The dog would probably die during a 15-kilometer walk. This is 137, 40-degree, 40 40-centigrade 40 uh, Celsius weather. 
thousands of flies. I know firsthand your flies in central in the outback in Australia, and uh, uh, but and his toolkit that came with the four wheeler would not turn the screws or remove the covers that he needed to, but he had a Leatherman tool, and the, with the Leatherman tool he was able to turn the six screws that he needed to turn, remove the covers that he needed to remove and found that the gears hadn't engaged and was able to push them in manually and able to drive back to, to safety. That's, that's just extraordinary. That's, that's, total, that's just extraordinary. Now, I have to ask you finally, how do you step away from a brand that is named after you? You don't entirely. <laughs> I, uh, I gave up the presidency of the company a few years ago, hired a very good person to, repl- to do the job, but I'm still the majority owner. I'm still the chairman. And when the tool, every tool has my name on it, I want each one to be perfect. So I'm still a part-time employee. I, I still enjoy the uh, traveling, as, uh, international travel aspect of business. It's work, but it's fun work to come to a place like Australia, meet customers, and hear their stories and, and interact with them. Well, that's extraordinary, and uh, Tim, it's been fascinating to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Leon, thank you very much. And now let's talk to Indeed economist Callum Pickering. Callum Pickering, the latest wages figures came in at 0.6%. That was meant to be the best in uh, three years, uh, but uh, it was a bit disappointing. What's your view about that? Yeah, I mean, it was obviously the best we have seen in three years, but in an absolute sense, it's another disappointing result. Um, Annual wage growth is only at 2.3%, 2.1% for the private sector, which is continuing to lag public sector wages. We've still got a long way to go. Well, public sector came in at something like 2.5%, didn't it? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Public sector wage growth has exceeded private sector wage growth for the last five or six years. And that's largely because the public sector... Uh, isn't controlled by the same market forces that have impacted the private sector. So we've seen stronger wages in healthcare, education, uh, public administration, for example. I'm wondering how much of that would have been helped by the um, hike in the minimum wage. Yeah, that certainly impacted um, wage growth in the September quarter. But we tend to, I mean, we often see the minimum wages hiked for the September quarter year after year. So, I mean, it impacted wage growth in the September quarter last year as well. It probably added around a 0.2 percentage points um, to that 0.6, so it certainly contributed quite a bit. Right, right, so 0.2. What about, what about tighter labour market? I mean, we've had employment slipping down to 5%. Yeah, that's right. It's certainly helping, which is why we are seeing that gradual improvement in wage growth. Um, at 2.1%, private sector wage growth is a little bit above that 1.8%, 1.9% low that it was at Um, last year and the year before. So we're heading in the right direction. It's just very slow going. And part of the reason for that is while the unemployment rate is down at 5%, broader measures of unemployment, such as the underutilisation rate, remain very high at around 13.5%. And so we still need to see very strong employment growth over a number of years to get that underutilisation rate down um, to the sort of level that it was 10 years ago, which is around about 11%. Could you explain that underutilisation phenomenon a bit more? 
Yeah, so it's a broader measure of unemployment and it includes not just people who are unemployed, but also people who are working part-time but seek more hours. So these are often people who are working 15 or 20 hours a week but would prefer to be working a full-time load. So and that, that's underemployment? Yes, yes. So you add unemployment and underemployment together and you get the underutilisation rate. And that's particularly important at the moment because we have seen very strong growth in part-time employment over a long period of time, over the past 10 to 15 years. And so the underemployment rate has gradually increased over time. And so there's still a lot of people out there looking for new opportunities who are currently working part-time. And that's feeding into labour market slack. And that's one of the reasons why wage growth remains quite weak. Uh, across the industries, I mean, it was an interesting mix. I mean, mining industry actually came in quite low. Yeah, that's right. Um, wages in the mining sector have been one of the, the weakest of all the industries over the past um, few years. Um, and we are seeing a little bit of improvement in wages for the mining sector, but it's still very much at the bottom end. And retail came in at something like 1.8%, really low. Yeah, the retail sector continues to struggle. I mean, if you follow the news, you see a lot of the reports about the retailers um, doing it hard, and that's reflected in, in these wage figures. Um, a lot of retailers right now simply can't afford to, to pay their staff a lot more. Um, they're coming under a lot of pressure from uh, online. Amazon, obviously, is impacting the bottom line as well. So it's a really difficult situation for retailers right now. And, of course, we've got a lot of retailers uh, hitting the wall going into administration. That's exactly right. Um, and given how weak wage growth continues to be, um, it certainly wouldn't be surprising if we saw more of that. Uh, it, it's interesting because at uh, the uh, same time, the uh, retail sector tends to take on a lot of part-time work as well. And so these are people whose labour would be, in your definition, underutilised. Uh, in some cases, absolutely. There would be a lot of, pe- lot of people working in uh, the retail sector, particularly younger workers, who would ideally want to be working more hours. Um, they're working 15 hours in the retail sector, but they prefer something that's a little bit more secure, a little bit more full-time. And right now, the retail sector just isn't in a great spot to uh, facilitate that. But there are other sectors that did quite well, like, for example, health. Yeah, that's right. We continue to see the strongest wage growth in um, healthcare as well as education, two um, key government sectors that have seen um, strong growth in the demand for these services. Um, the ageing of Australia's population continues to underpin strong growth in healthcare employment as well as wages, um, just largely the reason why it remains the strongest sector in the country. Uh, that's right. And uh, utilities came in quite well as well, didn't they? Yeah, high energy prices. Um, prices are high, so you can afford to pay your staff a little bit more. As simple as that. Simple as that. Uh, the construction sector came in quite low, which uh, reflects something going on in the housing market, I think. Yeah, there's plenty going on in the construction sector at the moment. I think it'll be one of the more highly volatile um, industries over the next uh, 12 to 18 months. We are seeing there's a number of um, construction um, metrics out there that have started to turn south. Um, we're potentially we're past the peak in terms of residential construction activity, so we'd expect a decline in that sector. That should underpin uh, weaker jobs growth and certainly could impact wages as well. So do you expect a pickup in the construction sector at all at any stage? Uh, there's a couple of things going on. There's weaker residential construction activity, but on the other hand, there is um, quite a number of public infrastructure projects which are ongoing or about to begin, and that could help support construction activity going forward. 
The other issue, uh, the other release during the week was the jobs figures. That came in quite high at, uh, again, uh, more jobs being created. Yeah, that's right. It was a, a quite a, a positive release. Um, so employment growth came in at 32,800 people, which was well above market expectations. The Australian economy has created 308,000 jobs over the past 12 months, which is a really strong result. Uh, perhaps the most positive part of the whole report, though, was that it was entirely driven by full-time opportunities. So full-time employment was up 42,000 in the month, which is a really good result. Um, and full-time employment has accounted for around five in every six new jobs created over the past year, which again is just a really positive development. Right, right, right. And uh, so th- this, uh, again, but again, we have a problem with underutilisation. Yeah, that's right. Um, but again, if full-time employment remains strong, and that's what's driving employment growth, that's going to help lower underutilisation. So you will, you will expect that will come down in time? Uh, we have, we've seen it come down already. It's just still at a very high level. So if we were to continue to see this sort of full-time job creation over the next 12 to 18 months, then I would fully expect the underutilisation rate to decline from 13.3% down to around you know, 12 and a half, maybe even a little bit lower. And that would be enough to facilitate stronger wage growth, maybe up to a, a 2.5 or 2.6%. But surely with wages, what we need is a figure of about 0.7% increase over the next few quarters for it to make any sort of impact. Surely that would be the case. Absolutely. Um, but that, that process is very gradual. You don't sort of go from where we currently are to a 0.7 or a 0.8 um, overnight. And so we just need to continue to see that uh, an underutilisation rate get down a little bit lower because when it does get there, we will begin to see those 0.7s. Right, okay, but uh, given that wages, given the underutilisation rate and uh, given wages are still around about 2.2, 2.1, this will have an impact on inflation, which will stay low, and uh, this will influence the RBA's thinking, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Wages is one of the um, data releases the RBA most closely watches because wages are sort of the key to everything. Inflation, household spending... um, and monetary policy, ultimately. Uh, if wage growth is at 2.1%, 2.2%, you're not going to see inflation within the 2 to 3% um, target band that the RBA is looking for. And as long as that remains the case, the RBA isn't going to consider hiking rates. So we're going to have to see quite substantially uh, an increase in the, wa- in, in the wage growth. And so where does that leave the RBA in terms of rate hikes? Well, they're going to stay where they've been for the last two and a half, three years, not doing a a great deal at all. I don't see a rate hike as being likely next year. I think while wage growth will improve over the course of 2019, I don't think it'll get to the level that will be consistent with inflation of two and a half percent. I don't expect the RBA to move until 2020 at the earliest. 2020? That's when we'll see a rate hike? That's the, the best case scenario, in my opinion, right now. Obviously, things could change between now and then that could push things uh, back again. Um, But right now, I would be betting that wage growth should be sufficiently strong in 2020 to warrant a rate hike. And uh, which means we're going to start seeing more respectable figures to the wage rate of something like in the order of 0.7%. That's certainly what we're hoping. Right. Okay. Okay. So we'll all be keeping an eye out for that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we're, we're heading in the right direction. I think that's a takeaway from the wage and, and labour force figures, but we've still got a long way to go.
still got so we've still got some weight. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Well, Callum Pickering, thank you very much for your time. And thank you for having me. So what's happening in the news? Well, global markets this week tumbled as a week-long swoon into technology stocks deepened and dragged other sectors, including retail, wiping out the 2018 gains. The Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped 600 points, erasing all the gains this year. The Nasdaq Composite continued to sell off as the technology majors that had powered the bull market over the past year declined on fears of a slowdown. The tech-heavy Nasdaq is firmly now in correction territory and at a seven-month low. It's down 15% from its recent peak. A correction is considered a decline of 10% from its high. The Standard & Poor's 500 stock index dropped 1.5%, with around 30% of the index in correction territory. And Vice President Mike Pence sharpened US attacks on China during a week of summits that ended on Sunday, most notably with a call for nations to avoid loans that would leave them indebted to Beijing. He said the US wasn't in a rush to end the trade war and would not change course until China changes its ways. That's a worrying prospect for a region heavily reliant on exports. The meetings in Singapore and Papua New Guinea produced little to suggest US President Donald Trump and his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping will reach a deal when they meet in a few weeks' time at the Group of 20 Summit in Argentina. The Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit ended in disarray on Sunday after leaders failed to agree on a joint statement reflecting tensions after Trump threatened to add to tariffs already in place on $250 billion worth of Chinese goods. Xi has retaliated with duties on $110 billion in US imports. No final communique was issued after the summit, with China refusing to sign in protest at the language used on reforms at the World Trade Organization. That's an unprecedented outcome in the summit's near 30-year history. The US insisted on making China a tough statement, demanding China no longer be treated as a developing nation under WTO rules, which would end trade concessions it enjoys. And Europe's chief Brexit negotiator, Michel Barnier, has raised the prospect of the UK remaining under EU control until the end of 2022, a proposal that would cost billions and infuriate Tory Brexiteers. At a special meeting with ambassadors from the EU's 27 member states, Barnier floated the prospect of extending the Brexit transition until the end of 2022. His idea would allow an extra two years to negotiate a trading relationship, but it means the UK would continue to follow EU rules and pay into its budget with no say for six and a half years after the 2016 vote to leave. Both sides have already agreed a transition period of 20 months until the end of 2020, as well as a chance to extend once by mutual consent. The length of the extension is still to be finalised by negotiators. The transition period, which a British government prefers to call the implementation period, would see the UK following all EU laws and European Court of Justice rulings, while having no ministers or members of European Parliament in the EU decision-making process. Theresa May has previously suggested an extension of only a few months would be needed, but the EU is still waiting on the UK to make a formal proposal. And Nissan chairman, Carlos Ghosn, was arrested on Monday after an internal company investigation found that he'd underreported his compensation to the Japanese financial authorities for several years. Nissan said it was cooperating with Japanese prosecutors. It also said that it had opened its inquiries after a whistleblower alleged that Mr. Gon had been misrepresenting his salary as well as using company assets for personal use. It's a remarkable tumble for Mr. Gon, 
who arrived at Nissan in 1999 after Renault, the French carmaker, bought a large stake in the Japanese company. And it may prove to be an ignominious final chapter in the career of one of the most powerful and highly regarded executives in the automotive industry. Now, after he was sent to Japan by Renault, Mr. Gon was credited with saving Nissan from financial collapse. He made sweeping changes at the automaker, closing five domestic factories and cutting 21,000 jobs. He was widely celebrated as a powerful change agent in Japan. His life story was even made into a manga comic, although critics noted that he earned his French nickname Le Cost Killer. And Reserve Bank of Australia Governor Philip Lowe says Australia's economic prosperity relies on people being able to trust banks and financial institutions. People must also be able to trust their living standards will get better over time, he said in a speech this week. Australian banks, he said, have a strong record of being worthy of the trust placed in them to repay deposits. But he said the poor behaviour highlighted by the Banking Royal Commission had dented trust in other parts of the sector. Turning things around, he said, will require banks to better deal with conflicts of interest issues, do away with poorly designed incentive systems and better hold misconduct to account, he said. Dr Lowe said a strong culture of service is also needed within financial institutions, stemming from systems set by boards and managers. And Fairfax Media shareholders have approved a $4 billion merger with Nine to create a multi-media company, ending the historic Fairfax brand, which was founded when John Fairfax bought the Sydney Morning Herald in 1841. Fairfax will be delisted after December the 7th. This is the biggest consolidation of media power since Rupert Murdoch's takeover of the Herald and Weekly Times in 1987. Fairfax chairman Nick Falloon urged shareholders to vote on the scheme and rejected an overnight offer from the former domain chief, Anthony Catalano, in which he proposed to buy 19.9% of Fairfax shares and sell non-core assets to return cash to shareholders. A court hearing is needed to approve the merger, scheduled for the 27th of November. Falloon said, subject to the approval of the court, the merger would be implemented on the 7th of December. The new entity will comprise the Nine Network, its digital publishing assets, The Herald, The Age, the Australian Financial Review, a majority stake in property giant Domain, streaming service Dan, and a 54.5% shareholding in radio network Macquarie Media, home of Sydney's 2GB and Melbourne's 3AW. The legacy mastheads will continue to be produced under the new regime, and Nine's chief executive Hugh Marks has said he wants Fairfax Media's mastheads to retain their independence because that is what allows them to produce quality journalism. The future of the regional and local newspapers published by Fairfax, including the Canberra Times, Illawarra Mercury and Newcastle Herald, is less secure. The television company will take a controlling 51.1% share in the new business and backroom functions as both companies, such as human resources and accounts, will be combined, resulting in job losses and savings of $50 million. The Australian Competition Consumer Commission approved the deal earlier this month, despite indications it would reduce competition. And the Australian Securities and Investments Commission is suing Tennis Australia and entrepreneur Harold Mitchell over allegations that Mitchell, as a Tennis Australia board member, passed confidential information to the Seven Network to help it win the rights for the Australian Open and failed to tell the rest of the board of a rival bid to Sevens. ASIC's case relates to a decision made in 2013 by the Tennis Australia board to award the domestic television broadcast rights for the Australian Open tournament to the Seven Network for a five-year period without a competitive tender process. ASIC alleges that Mitchell failed to inform the Tennis Australia board about the concerns that the Seven Network had over the interests of the Work 10 in acquiring the rights, 
and encourage the Tennis Australia board to conclude an agreement with the Seven Network instead of putting the rights out to competitive tender. And Meyer shares have plunged as much as 16% this week to six-month lows as investors wound back profit expectations following a sharp fall in sales in the October quarter. Meyer shares fell after emerging from an ASX-enforced trading halt on Friday when the retailer confirmed a report in the Australian Financial Review's rear window column that first quarter sales had tanked. And Commonwealth Bank boss Matt Komen, who was the first of the bank's bosses to face the Royal Commission this week, has revealed the bank was a week away from scrapping commissions paid to mortgage brokers, but ditched the plans for fears it would decrease its share of the home loan market. Komen acknowledged that the bank has been stuck in a vicious cycle of putting out spot fires and repaying customers because it hadn't properly invested in its systems and processes. He said the bank had been unable to learn from the lessons of the past because it was focused on the wrong things, including improving performance through collaboration, which had distracted it from looking after customers. He said, and I'll quote here, There'd been a culture of us not learning from issues of misconduct in the past. Ultimately, that's why I said we get into a period of ongoing remediation without fundamentally understanding the root cause in each of those matters. Komen also made a number of other admissions, including that CBA rarely demoted employees, that it shied away from calling variable pay a bonus because it sent the wrong message, and that rewarding staff with financial incentives for selling products had delivered perverse outcomes for customers. He also acknowledged that his organisation wrongly sold credit card insurance to more than 60,000 unemployed customers and balked at removing perverse incentives for mortgage brokers to sell larger loans. In his testimony to the Royal Commission, Komen laid the blame for the mis-selling of consumer credit insurance firmly at the feet of his predecessor, Ian Narrick. That's despite Mr Komen having headed the bank's retail division for most of a period after concerns about the selling of this insurance were first raised. Now, consumer credit insurance provides payouts to help cover loan or credit card payments if someone is ill or out of work. However, CBA was selling the policies to tens of thousands of people ineligible to make a complaint, such as students and the unemployed. Komen told the Royal Commission he'd asked his predecessor to stop selling the products, but Narev refused. He said this reflected a general failure in leadership at the Commonwealth Bank at the time. He was asked whether he felt CBA had the right leaders in the past. No, he replied. Do you feel they have the right leaders now? We'll see, he said. I hope so, yes. And for stuffing it up, Narev was paid close to $44 million. And BHP has settled a long-standing dispute with the Australian Taxation Office for $529 million. That's in relation to taxes it allegedly owed between 2003 and 2018. The mining giant said it had already paid $328 million of this amount in response to amended tax assessments. As part of the settlement, the company will not admit it engaged in tax avoidance. The transfer pricing dispute relates to the amount of tax BHP owed for selling its Australian commodities via its Singapore marketing business, or allegedly shifting its profits offshore. Singapore's corporate tax rate at 17% is significantly lower than Australia's rates, but the Singaporean rate which applies to companies like BHP in recent years, has been legally reduced to almost zero thanks to generous incentives from Singapore's government. Now, the reality is marketing hubs have been established by the mining giants to allow for iron ore and coal to be dug up in Australia, then sold to the company's own operations in Singapore before they're subsequently sold with a high markup to China and other nations. The ATO Deputy Commissioner described the settlement as a fair and reasonable outcome. All profits from the sales of BHP's Australian-owned commodities will be taxed in Australia, 
Rio Tinto is also being investigated for allegedly shifting profits through Singapore. And finally, infant formula maker and fresh milk supplier A2 Milk said its net profit in the first four months of the financial year jumped 64.5% to 86 million New Zealand dollars. That's 80.4 million Australian dollars from the year earlier period. And that's it for this week. And next week I have a terrific interview with Lily Toma, who created the startup Giselle and I, which sells infant products. In the meantime, you can keep up with me on Twitter at TalkingBizBiotLZ or on Facebook. Take care, be good to one another, and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.